Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian grace infusion. We like to think cosmopolitan-ish guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by David Zoll and Mandy Smith to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, this week I had the privilege of talking with Emily Ashfani Smith, author of most recently, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Emily writes about culture, psychology, and relationships, and her work has appeared in places like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Atlantic, to name just a few. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Emily Ashfani Smith. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Now, you work at the Hoover Institute. Yes, yeah, so I, I am a writer, and I also do some things on the side, like editing for the Hoover Institution, which is based out at Stanford, and helping them manage their Ben Franklin Circles project, which is this initiative to kind of build meaning in local communities. Do you feel like, is there any like envy at people like the Hoover Institution? Like, do people like, why couldn't we have named it after Kennedy? Or Eisenhower, like, it's like a more pop, like, you know, I mean, like, like one of the like, you know, top tier popularity presidents. Like, yeah. does that factor into the social psychology at all? I, I think that the people at Hoover, include, you know, including myself, maybe we would say that Hoover kind of gets a a bad rap, and he's underappreciated as as a president. So we're trying to, you know, maintain his legacy and keep it going strong. Make Hoover's legacy great again. Yeah, exactly. It's huge. Um, yeah, so Emily, you grew up in Montreal. Or you were born in Montreal, but you, or you were born in Switzerland, but you grew up in Montreal, mm-hmm. and you're you grew up in an Islamic home, um, which was Sufist, right? In 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 kind of orientation. I, I grew up in a Sufi meeting house that my parents administered from our home in downtown Montreal, and so. Sufism is a school of mysticism that's associated with Islam. Some of the Sufi orders are very close to Islam, uh, and but some of them are, you know, are, are not. They're more liberal, and you know, the the Sufis don't consider themselves Muslims at all. And the order that my parents belonged to uh, was one of these more liberal orders. So, growing up in the meeting house meant that twice a week, uh, Sufis would come over to our home and they would sit on the floor and silently meditate as they, you know, repeated kind of a mantra or a name of God, focusing on their breath. And they were, you know, devoted to, you know, loving kindness and service to all kind of these, these ideas that you see emerge again and again in, in all the different major uh, faith traditions. Now, do you find like in, in a mystical tradition like that, that, that sometimes there's almost like mystics of different traditions are closer than adherents of like, you know, somebody that's is, has Sufist kind of influences might be closer to, you know, or a Christian mystic and a Buddhist mystic, you know, might have, you know, there's commonalities across the mysticism sometimes. Definitely. I, 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 and that's one of the things I love about mysticism. It's, I think it's because there's something about mysticism that's just, it's like the purified aspects of the of the religious beliefs and of the practices and so when you get to when you get to mysticism and any religion you start seeing these ideas that seem more like than separate so this idea of you know seeking union with god and you know god is this kind of mysterious um entity that you're trying to go closer to the importance of, you know, meditation or contemplative practices and loving kindness. All of those are kind of part of the mystical tradition across the different faiths and spiritual systems. Now you talk in your book about how you quickly as a teen gravitated towards philosophy Mm -hmm. and that was sort of an, an electrifying, it was a strong gravitational pull there. And you've studied positive psychology, and you've wrote this, you've written this wonderful book called "The Power of Meaning." Now, isn't it like a professional liability? Like if somebody write, writes a book about relationships, like these, I, I guess there's pressure on them to have like, hey, they've got a great marriage. Or if you write a fitness book, you've got to be a paragon of fitness. Do your friends like? Do you feel like 
a lot of pressure to, to come off as having a very meaningful life. <laughs> is there a pressure? Is there meaning pressure? There's, I guess there is a little bit of meaning pressure. So, you know, people always say like, why, you know, why are you the person who like, you know, wrote this book? Or if I'm speaking, like why, you know, why should, you know, companies or organizations listen to you on this message, especially because, you know, meaning is such a, it's such a perennial question of, of humankind and, you know, philosophers and thinkers for thousands of years have been, you know, debating what, you know, what, what, what it means to lead a meaningful life. So I definitely, you know, I definitely do try to bring my own story into it, like in my Sufi childhood, and then just being on this quest, you know, ever since then to kind of understand what the meaning of life is. And your book, I mean, you talk about, you know, David Brooks in his book, The Social Animal says that science doesn't often create new philosophies, but enthrones or dethrones old ones. And you sort of say, like, all the research we know today about what leads to the good life, on some ways, in some ways, like back in, say, like the sixth century, you know, <laughs> with Epicurus and, and Aristotle, you have the kind of divergence, right? Like either hedonism in the sense of your sense of a good life is maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, or it's eudonomia, you know, more like the classic sort of the virtuous or the good life. Is that, I mean, you sort of use that to frame the discussion, which is influenced not just by classical sources, but by contemporary psychology and neuroscience and things like this, right? Yes. So I think one of the most exciting and intriguing things about the new psychology research and research within positive psychology about what a meaningful life consists of is the fact that it kind of affirms so much of our ancient wisdom and so many of the great ideas that philosophers have had throughout the ages. For example, you mentioned Aristotle. So Aristotle said that the good life is a virtuous life. It's a life where you're contributing to your community and activating your potential and just, you know, doing things to kind of, you know, to, to contribute. And that that's what the research has found as well. So that, you know, if people, you know, are contributing or if they are using their strengths to give back to the world, they feel, you know, a deeper sense of well-being. Now, the research doesn't confirm everything because, you know, there have been thinkers who, you know, in the past have thought that happiness is actually, we should pursue happiness and maximize pleasure. And the research shows that actually when we do that, that we actually end up feeling a little bit unhappy as a result. So it's interesting. The research kind of confirms some of the wisdom, but not, not the other. So like the law increases the trespass as the, uh, apostle would say, right? If you make a rule, I got to be happy, mm-hmm. then you, you, you feel more pressure and it cut, you crumble under the pressure of the need to be happy. Yeah, exactly. Happiness, it, it's elusive. It's like the more you chase it, the further away it gets. You, I think you have to let happiness be the byproduct of other things that you do, kind of meaningful things that you're engaged with. And for you, you identify, there are four pillars for a meaningful life. If you're going, if you're, if you're, Moving more in the meaning direction than the hedonism direction, the the keys are belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. So, what if you had to rank them? If you if you could be on a desert island and you only had one, which would it be? I think that probably belonging is the one that you you don't want to go without. There's just there's so much research now showing that people. Um, that belonging is, you know, we, we have this need for belonging the same way that we have like a need for food and water, that it's as important to our, you know, psychological and even our physical health as food and water are to our, to our sustenance. So there's just something about being in relationships where you feel valued and you feel like you matter that, you know, that enlivens you, that gives you kind of vitality and a sense of meaning in life. I write about this one study in my book about children who at, at young ages I didn't didn't have that need for belonging satisfied because they were brought up in an orphanage where at the time, uh, you know, this was in, in the first part of the 20th century. At the time, there was this kind of zeitgeist around not treating kids with too much affection because it was bad for them and it would make them sick. And so there were these children in orphanages who were basically deprived of, you know, the care and love of a caregiver. And what the researchers found is that these kids ended up dying at earlier ages. They ended up getting more sick. They're, they lagged behind developmentally. So these were kids who had, you know, shelter, food, all of their physical health kind of satisfied, but without belonging, ended up suffering regardless. Mm. 
Do you, do you feel like to, I mean, this weird, is there kind of a toxic belonging that's, I mean, it feels like we're an increasingly siloed tribal culture, right? Where mm-hmm. people almost seem like they get belonging from from demonizing groups or, or from sort of uh, the fall outrage and that sort of stuff, you know, and through social media and things like that. Is there kind of, is this like belonging going bad? I mean, is that mm-hmm. a kind of belonging that it's actually not, that doesn't create meaning in the best sense? Mm-hmm. I think that in the same way that there, there are false sources of meaning in life. So some people, you know, if they're feeling existential despair, will turn to, you know, drugs or, you know, ideological politics or something like that. And and they're hoping that these things will give them a sense of meaning. It's the same with belonging. I think there can be these false sources of belonging. And to your point, it's exactly, you know, well, let me take a step back. I think that true belonging is defined by being in a relationship where you are valued intrinsically for who you are. You're cared for, for who you are. The the person you're interacting with thinks that you have intrinsic worth and dignity. And in turn, you treat another person, that other person, like they have intrinsic worth and dignity. The problem with belonging that's grounded in some sort of label. So whether it's a political label like, you know, Democrat, Republican, or a sports label like Yankees versus Red Sox is that the reason you're valued is for the label that you carry. So if you're part of a a group of Yankee supporters, you know, yeah, you you know, your friends will love you. The community will love you. But if you go on and become a Red Sox supporter, they'll hate you all of a sudden. So you weren't being intrinsically valued for who you were. You were being valued for something that was contingent. Is the intrinsic a synonym here almost for unconditional or, or, or some sort of, I mean, there's like an acceptance that's not fleeting. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. Yes, I think so. Because it, it feels like so many things, like there are like I, it relationships, not I, thou's, right? They're Exactly. And that, and, and that's, that's really what belonging is about is kind of this unconditional care and love that you receive from another person. You tell this powerful story of a woman, I think her name was Ashley in the book that, because you're saying, look, you know, like we don't all get to have, be like, to have the most meaningful vocations or occupations or, but, or at least glamorous ones or, you know, uh, ones where there's a lot of notoriety, but this woman cares for like, giraffes at the zoo, right? I mean, a lot of what she does is shovel excrement. And yet you say of all your interviews, she's one of the people that seems to have the most purpose in her life. Yeah, exactly. So she, she basically does manual labor. She's, you know, she does menial tasks. 80% of her time, she told me is spent cleaning up animal waste. So she, she works at the Detroit zoo and she cares for giraffes, wallabies, and kangaroos. And She's she's a zookeeper there. And so, like I said, what that means is that she spends so much of her time cleaning up animal waste. And yet when I asked her what her purpose was, she didn't say, you know, my job is to clean up animal waste. She said, my job is to care for the animals and do everything I can in my power to make their lives as rich and as, as stimulating as possible. None of them, she pointed out, chose to be there in the zoo. And yet she, as their caregiver, is responsible for you know, enhancing their lives as much as she can. That, yeah, that's a, it's a really powerful story. It, it also, you, know, you, you, ta- you tell some remarkable stories about transcendence and these experiences, these ineffable experiences, and, and they're almost aesthetic in, 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 in quality. And you, you're remarkably about people that have had remarkable success in recovering from addiction through experiments with transcendental transcendent experiences how does that how does that work i mean can you say a little bit about how one object of uh, it takes your i guess takes desire from another i mean yeah so so that i love that research because it's it's such an interesting window into human nature and and what drives us and i think it's really relevant today as we think about so many of the addictive, um, you know, problems that are overtaking society, whether it's social media, technology addiction, or, you know, the opioid drug epidemic that, you know, that's unfortunately, you know, ruined the lives of so many people. So what this research found, it, it studied a group who had severe cigarette addictions. And the researchers wanted to know if we induce a mystical experience in these people via the drug psilocybin, which is the um, active ingredient in magic mushrooms. 
if we give them a transcendent experience, will that make their addiction go away? And it turned out that it did. And I think that the reason is that we were kind of talking about it earlier. When you feel like your life isn't meaningful or you feel that kind of hole, this existential vacuum, you try to fill it with something. So I know for in my own case, like when I'm feeling bored or when I'm feeling like kind of like, you know, uncentered because I don't have like a goal that is helping me, you know, that is kind of giving my life direction at that particular moment or that particular week, I end up, you know, turning to social media or just like, you know, it's like obsessing over my email. And it's, it's, it's kind of an addictive, this frenzied addiction. I think for other people, you know, it, it can, that can happen through like, you know, binge eating food or cigarette addictions or, or, you know, drug addictions. And, and that goes away when we feel like we actually have something worthwhile to do with our time that is, that can supersede that addiction. So I interviewed one of the subjects for this study that you're talking about. And I said, how is it that this addiction just went away? Because you think of addiction as like a physical thing, you know, this physical part of your body that you can't control, physical desire. And he said, you know, after the experiment, when I had the transcendent experience, I just, I got up from it and I realized that my addiction was so small compared to what I had learned about the nature of the universe and how connected I felt to everything mm-hmm. as a result. So it's just like you, 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 when you have something bigger, that's kind of orienting your life, it, these addictions and other kind of neuroses, I think melt away because they seem so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Mm, that's really powerful. Yeah. You know, storytelling. I mean, it's interesting because I think you talk about that as being an incredibly important part of the meaningful life. It, it almost sounds like today when we say narrative, like what's the narrative it's a synonym for bullshit. Like somebody said, we got to get control of the narrative, right? It seems like so often the opposite of understanding and authenticity, but you're talking about a different kind of narrative, like actually knitting together your life into something that is storied and meaningful. Like how, how does that play a role? I mean, and, and how do people become, I mean, cause I, I think this is, it's hard. I mean, we all, we all like joke with people. Oh, that person can't tell a good story, right? It's an art. So how do we learn to be good artful and honest, reflective storytellers. It's hard. And I think that the thing to realize is that the meaningful life, unlike the happy life is, it's difficult. It's kind of, it's, it's not, there's no quick fix thing. And when it comes to storytelling, this is especially true because it can take you years before you kind of have crafted a narrative about your life. So what I'm talking about here is, you know, the storytelling about your own life. So taking your experiences and knitting them together, as you put it, into a narrative that explains who you are, where you came from, and even where you're going. Um, I this chapter, I think, was the the hardest one for me to write in in large part because I I hadn't I hadn't really done this for my own life, and I think a lot of us haven't done it, which is why it's kind of an unexpected source of meaning. It, it, when I go and I give talks about my book, people are always kind of most intrigued and provoked by storytelling. And I think it's because we're all storytellers, but we don't quite realize it. So for myself, like I spent a lot of time reflecting on my past and how did it shape me? And I, and I, as I was doing it, writing this chapter, I realized this is something I have never really done before. And yet it was so powerful because it really forced me to kind of come to a sense of resolution about different experiences of my life. And and I should say to you that storytelling is particularly powerful when it comes to dealing with um, a, a low point or an adversity that you've experienced, because these are kind of blips in our narrative. These are places where our, our the story that we're living was not the story we expected to live. And so we have to integrate those experiences into our story and kind of understand how they shaped us. As for how we do that, I think that, you know, it it takes reflection. So asking yourself very simply, you know, what were, you know, the three or four defining experiences of my life that really shaped who I am today? And literally just, you know, writing them down and then asking yourself, how did these how did these experiences change me? I think another way is is via what academics call counterfactual thinking. So this is thinking about some pivotal event in your life, and then imagining that it hadn't happened, and then asking yourself how your life would have been different if that hadn't have happened. So you know, if you went to X college, what if you had gone to Y college? If you you moved to X city, what if you had you know stayed home or moved to Y city? And researchers find that this is a powerful builder of meaning because it helps you realize the benefits of taking the path that you did end up taking. So so just kind of 
of mentally subtracting events is, is another way to build meaning. Um, you are a student, not just of psychology and philosophy, but of a lot of the world's spiritual traditions. I mean, you, you talk about in the book how religion, traditional religion, at least in pre-modern cultures, was the primary source for meaning making. And it's and, and while you don't think the pillars are necessarily um, the property or propriety, you know, they're not, a, religion's not the sole proprietor of them, but it is, it, there's almost, it's a challenge, I guess, in a secular world, because you've got to kind of make it up on your own to some degree, right? I mean, why is that, why does that present a challenge? And, and how do you find people meeting that and struggling with it? It's, you know, religion and spiritual traditions have for thousands of years been the primary source of meaning in people's lives. They they gave people kind of clear answers to what the meaning of life is. So whether it's, you know, God or some ultimate reality. And they also laid out how we can lead meaningful lives, which usually involved, you know, doing certain rituals and practices and uh, activities that help us, you know, grow closer to God, such as praying, you know, going to services, fasting, things like that. And also, as you mentioned, the religion is kind of where these four pillars are, are really strong. So religion offers people a sense of community. It gives them a purpose to work towards, like being a good person. It offers them narratives that help them understand themselves and the world that they live in. And of course, it provides opportunities for transcendence. So there's this wonderful kind of structuredness about religion and a clarity that you have about meaning if you're a religious person and if you're thoughtful about it, if you're not just kind of mindlessly going through the motions. Hmm. I think um, in, in our, so I think it's important to recognize that in most of the world, religion still serves that role, but in many, um, you know, parts of the developed world, it is increasingly secular. Religion is no longer kind of the default source and, and path to meaning. And so that's left people on their own, as you say. And I think that it's difficult because it's such a burden. Like, there's so there's an infinite array of things that you can do or options that you can choose from to you know to try to make your path towards a meaningful life so how do you choose how do you know what to do yeah it's like most people don't feel more free in the cereal aisle they feel less free right the more choice yeah exactly the more choices you have the more kind of intimidating it is to you know venture forward and kind of make your own path so um i guess part of why i wrote my book is because i wanted to clarify for for some of those people, you know, what what it really means to lead a meaningful life. Do you identify in a any particular religious tradition today? So I think you know, it's I I've grown up kind of being a lover of all you know religious and spiritual traditions. I you know I grew up in a Sufi meeting house, and you know I think once you're on that spiritual path, it always stays with you. I, I also, you know, my husband and I will go to, you know, Episcopal services or Catholic services together. And I find great beauty in that as well. Is your life as meaningful as you'd like it to be now at this point in, in your own journey? I, I think that I'm always looking for my life to be more meaningful. Um, I know that, you know, I was kind of motivated to write this book in part because I was looking for the answers myself and, you know, one of the things that I have been thinking about recently is, you know, when when you're so driven by, you know, goals, like I'm, I'm a very goal-driven person, you derive a lot of meaning from accomplishing your goals. But sometimes you you don't accomplish your goals or you fail. And it's it's kind of dangerous to put so much stock in, in purpose and, you know, to, to, to find meaning in life because when that's not there at moments in your life, you kind of are left feeling like, oh gosh, like, is, does what I do matter? Does my life have worth? And so I have been trying to look elsewhere and look beyond just kind of this, you know, narrow goal-focused, purpose-driven form of meaning, um, such as, you know, to my relationships, to transcendence, to to have like a more, a more grounded form of meaning. Well, I hope you continue to find um, sure footing. Uh, <laughs> the book is great and all of our listeners should get it. The Power of Meaning, Creating a Life that matters. Emily, thanks for spending some time talking with us. You 
good day to you both. I'm here with David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist that makes all things Mockingbird flow. And sitting in again for Sarah Condon is our friend from Ohio, Mandy Smith. How are you guys doing? Great. It's good to be with you. I'm I'm good, man. I'm uh, bracing ourselves here for some snow, which, uh, you know, with the daylight savings thing on Sunday, I'm supposed to preach. And uh, that just made me no one comes, which is always a little bit uh, freeing in, when you when you're prepping for something. But the, the, the episode of Same Old Song, I have to give a, another plug, Scott, was so good. You and Jake doing amazing work. It's a lot of fun. And let me just say something. I want to repudiate something we did on the podcast a few months ago. I got for my birthday an Apple Watch. And I don't know about Fitbits, but the law is not increasing the trespass. I've walked more with the monitor. I'm exercising better. Get that metric up. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it's, I, I, I've exceeded my fitness goals every day since I've worn it. I've, it's, I love it. You're your little... own scientific experiment, Scott. Exactly. It's so, I, although the thing is about the Apple Watch, I don't really know what else it does. <laughs> Like, I mean, it vibrates, it does some things. It like, Did you I, ever watch Dick Tracy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is Dick Tracy-ish. It is yes. it's very, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. It, it buzzes now and again. <laughs> Tells me to breathe sometimes, which is good. <laughs> Breathing is good. Well, friends, we've got uh, some interesting stuff to talk about. The first piece comes from is it the Christian Science Monitor? Yeah, the Christian right? Science Monitor. I always love that that publication. This is from Joan Blades, the Christian Science Monitor, who is the co-founder of MoveOn.org, which is kind of the one of the great, uh, one of the largest, at least, uh, progressive sort of lobbying grassroots organizations. And the title of it is "Why I've Left My Liberal Comfort Zone and Found Conservative Friends." So, um, you know, eyebrows uh, raised. She says, uh, as the co-founder of MoveOn.org, I'm steeped in the progressive culture. I often hear the argument that we must win by overwhelming the conservatives with greater numbers. However, true progress requires stretching myself beyond comfort. There is another approach that I ask my progressive friends and everyone to consider. Love thy neighbor. Whoa. And she references wow. uh, Nicholas Kristof's thing from the other week about um, – urging people not to otherize Trump supporters. Uh, she says, Mr. Kristoff described the political cost of dismissing 63 million Americans. But there's a deeper cost. When we fail to recognize our common humanity, we lose valued relationships. We also make our lives smaller, divide our communities, and fail to benefit from everyone's best ideas. And then, But what it gets really good, it gets sort of in the grace and practice mode when she talks about her relationship with her friend Jacob, who's clearly... Um, a religious guy. Uh, she says, even though I have not persuaded my good friend Jacob that climate is a critical concern, he cares uh, more now in part because he cares about me. Also, this is the, probably the best uh, line of the whole thing, in my opinion, also because I did not insist that he accept my view of climate science. Instead, I noted that I don't need proof that climate change is happening. Even if there's only a 10% chance that we are destroying the planet's capacity to support future generations, I find that unconscionable. This gave Jacob the space to consider the possibility that climate change is an unacceptable risk rather than, a, rather than react to a demand, which is often what happens in discourse. And Jacob has caused me to see that climate change is the progressive end time story, which we, you know, is, is, he's right about that. This is not a one-way exchange. I care about Jacob's concern that as a religious conservative, he and his community are becoming marginalized. We have remarkably different beliefs, but we are learning to hold the tension of our differences and listen to each other with humility. More and more of us are working to spark a movement of respect using simple listening practices that open our heart. Now, which that's a, it's a very nice sentiment, I think. I don't know. Um, the cynic in me says that it's it's um, uh, how how open are actually are you? I think to listen to another person, to truly listen, you have to be willing, or at least admit the possibility that you might possibly change your mind if about something. And um, mm -hmm. I know I have people that come into church that say, "Well, as long as you agree with me on these five things, well, then I'll come to your church." And you say, "Well, hold on, you know, maybe you should go somewhere else because." Uh, I, we welcome people with strong convictions. However, um, 
we also want to never uh, treat anything as completely uh, sacrosanct. Um, and to listen to one another, to actually have community and build uh, relationships, it involves grace, and grace uh, usually necessitates some, at least the, the vaguest possibility that you might be wrong about something. Mm. I'm being reminded of a moment in Bible college when somebody beside me said, if God doesn't exist, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> and I kind of thought, well, the God that I believe in, if he doesn't actually exist, wouldn't want us to believe in him because he is truth. So I don't know <laughs> if you can follow mm. that that logic, but um, there's a quote by Simone Weil that says something about like, if we turn aside from God in order to wrestle with truth, then we'll actually find ourselves in his arms. I mean, that's not the full beauty of how she words mm. it, but um, there's a freedom in opening ourselves up because if God is really truth in all things, not just in our little Christian worlds, but you know, this woman here is not does not count herself a part of of God's world, God's kingdom as we would see it, and yet at the same time she is finding the truth of love your neighbor, you know, and so the truth that we know in Christ, I believe, is the truth that all people long for. They just don't call it Jesus, you know, and so it's our job to actually say. Oh, that's what I call Jesus. Mm. So, yeah, there's this great story. I, it's probably apocryphal, but if it didn't happen, <laughs> it should have. That Billy Graham was in China, and he was meeting with these monks in, uh, in, in somewhere. And there was this Buddhist monk who was sort of meditating, uh, you know, outside the monastery where he was meeting for this dialogue. And you know, Billy Graham, you know, he, he struck up a conversation. Of course, what's Billy Graham do? He evangelizes him. And then as after the dialogue, he's walking back down the, the hill and he sees the same monk and the monk runs up to Billy Graham and says, thank you, thank you, thank you. This one who you told me about Jesus, I realized I've always known him, but I never knew his name. Mm. And I mean, I think there's probably revelations of the triune God all over the place, but not as the triune yeah. God. Mm. Just that scene at the end of The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis's, you know, um, Chronicles of Narnia book, The Last Battle, always scandalizes people because there's somebody who finds himself entering heaven in the way that Lewis tells the story who doesn't seem to be an Aslan follower. And um, there's some reference to... uh, it's not that he he was worshiping some other god the whole time, and so there's this question of well, does that mean that that god is the same as Aslan? And and the point is made never n- let it never be said that the other god is also Aslan. But the reality is, if we seek something uh, with the motives of finding Aslan, then we are seeking Aslan without calling him Aslan. And I know there's all kinds of ways that could become uh, universalist or whatever, but I do believe that. Um, we are all ultimately seeking Jesus, and like you just said, Scott, we we don't all necessarily call call it that. And my longing is for us to to find it in that fullest sense. I think people find it in various bits and pieces, um, and it's only in Jesus that we find the the wholeness of it. Yeah, I, you know, I am reading a book right now that I am finding incredibly helpful. Um, it's by Thomas Halick. It's called "I Want You to Be." on the God of love. And my friend Bill Bourne and I are doing a series of podcasts on it because it's just so uh, – Halleck is wonderful. And um, he's a Czech psychoanalyst and Catholic priest. He says this, so God has placed us in time and space in which faith but also atheism are challenged to leave the cozy abodes of security in which they were settled and set off anew on a path of seeking. We hear and read about the declining numbers of believers in our cultural space – But that assertion repeated ad nauseum is only valid if the term believer is wrongly applied solely to the people who are at home in one of the traditional forms of religion. Moreover, the numbers of convinced atheists are also declining, but there are growing numbers of seekers, people on a journey. And is it it indeed Abraham, the father of the faith, who set off again and again on a journey and he set out not knowing where he was going, scripture says, Mm. isn't it he who is the father of just such a faith? Faith on a journey, faith as a journey. And I think that that, like, one of the things I appreciate about Halleck is his, the, you know, I think like anytime we have a permanently bifurcated anthropology where there are these kinds of people and, the, and, and, and those kinds of people, it bucks against, you know, the, the thrust of the New Testament in places like Colossians, in him all things were created and have there being, you know, so, so I think that maybe the difference between, um, those inside 
the church and outside the church is just a noetic one. People that know the good news of their own forgiveness and acceptance and people that are, you know, just are, are, are don't have, don't yet know, but I almost want to say like, I want to call people like, like, um, Joan, the woman that wrote this article, it's a, she's an unwitting witness, mm. right, to the mm. gospel. There, mm. I mean, on our good days, we try to be witting witnesses, right? We <laughs> get up and say, hey, how can we tell the story of God's redeeming love in the world? But she's a, clearly an unwitting witness to it. Mm. And I, I think that rather than be afraid of that, we should celebrate it. Yeah. Mm. What makes me sad about this is that the person who seems to be a Christian um, is a fearful one and you know, worrying about feeling marginalized. And I think this is where we lose our witness when we are kind of reactionary and feel threatened. And I've been reading this week, Matthew six, and the message version of it has this amazing way of, of, um, telling verse 22 that talks about, uh, if your eyes are windows into your body, if you open your eyes one wide, if you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. And uh, I just think that we are called to this opening our eyes in wonder, even when we are afraid and, you know, feeling cornered. And even if it is the case that our faith is becoming marginalized, even if we are finding ourselves in that place, it's our job to, to open our eyes in wonder even still and to bring something to the world that is not reactionary and, and, you know, living in, in that closed off. It's a normal thing when we're in pain to close our eyes. And I know like when you're going into labor, they tell you, don't close your eyes, visualize something, think, you know, imagine this baby that you're having, have this imagination of what is becoming even through the pain. And so I think that's kind of our calling um, as Christians, even if we are marginalized, to to not have a fearful, shut down, closed, small vision, but to open our eyes in that kind of wonder that Jesus is describing there. Yeah, to the guy's credit, though, he is engaging with her. I think that's that's kind of he's not yeah. he's not he's, he's yeah, not he doesn't ghettoized himself, which is I think. Uh, um, mm. I just want to give him a, a little credit. I uh, <laughs> I don't know you, Jacob. Sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to judge you. I think I'm talking about myself here too. Like there's a way that I have a tendency to do that too. So I'm just as disappointed in the way yeah, that I do sure. that. And there's a great link in the article that apparently um, this woman who helped start Move On has been a founding member of this thing called Living Room Conversations, which is a format for basically getting people that you don't agree on everything with on, on points of substance and values and how to host like parties and conversations. I mean, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's, it, I mean, what a beautiful thing. So, yes. yeah, we're, we're trying to do something like that in Charlottesville called Meeting of Opposites. And I, I applaud it in theory, but I also find that the folks that are most attracted to it are those on the far sides of each equation and the most dug, dug mm. in. So the, um, you always wonder before I want to sit down with someone like this, I have to be humble enough in myself to say something that they say uh i have to uh, if i'm going to listen to them i have to uh, allow for the possibility that i might be wrong and i i i, I they uh, my conversation partner that also uh, has to be true unless uh, otherwise it's an exercise in futility and further resentment so that's um the only when i when mm. i hear living room conversations i'm thinking that's great but um I, i'd like how do we do that with people that are um, not ideologues? Because those are the people that are that tend to be mm. attracted to those sort of things. And at the same time, but hey, and the people and the people that need it the most. I mean, that's what's interesting because it's it's probably people that for whom, like you know, for some people, right? Maybe it's being a successful parent or provider or executive or artist that is that is does their identity work for some people it's ideas that do the idolatrous identity work so like the living room conversation thing is probably not as relevant for someone that's not as ideological because their identity is uh, their ego needs are met by their income or by their body image or by you know like but for it's it's interesting that that it's exactly the people who's whose identity work is done with idolatrous ideology that probably mm. need it the most. Yeah. I should mention um, that 
Englewood, you, m- you might be familiar with the Englewood Review of Books. Um, Englewood is actually also a church in Indianapolis, and they have done a lot of work about around just dialogue in general and have spent a lot of time learning how to have really great dialogue as a community. Um, and I know S- Christopher Smith, who is the author of Slow Church, is, is also the editor of the Englewood Review, and he has a little um, Kindle book on Amazon. It's only two ninety nine, called The Virtue of Dialogue, but I think he's also currently working on a book based on those same principles. Um, and I love the story of this church community that um, really invested in that, and it became kind of a central piece of who they are as a community, and so many of their ministries flowed out from those conversations. So if, if I think there are some really great resources that are out there that um, – you know, we're talking more about this at the moment and we don't have to reinvent the wheel if we're actually looking for ways mm. forward. And let me just say that when I walk around, if I see you out there, if you're a listener and I see you out there in the world and you have like an Android watch or a Fitbit or something, I'm <laughs> open to this. I, I'm open to understanding oh, okay. that, that, that device is, is not completely inferior <laughs> to what I'm wearing on my wrist. <laughs> actually, I'm not. I'm not open to it. I'm not. We owe you a big happy birthday, by the way. Scott's birthday was this week, so happy birthday to our beloved host here. Oh, thank you. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. Go, 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 shorty. It's your birthday. We're going to party like it's your birthday. We're going to sip a party like it's your birthday. And you know we don't give a fuck. Do you know what my Apple Watch just told me? Somebody just retweeted your failure Post that we're going to talk about later. So see, there it is, right on my there watch. There you go. And now moving on to the stories we tell ourselves. Yes, here we go. Megan Garber in the Atlantic gives a lengthy uh, review of Joan Didion's uh, new publication, South and West, from a Notebook, which is a '70s era artifact uh, of sort of a trip she took to the South. And uh, it it uh, that's sort of a deceptive description because it's really about Didion's place in. Uh, the culture today and what she stands for and what she and and sort of how identity has become something that's sold to us it's it's a really kind of wide ranging piece i'll read to you a little bit from it cuz joan didion is a fascinating character um she opens by just discussing didion's famous um why I Write Speech, when she rips off Orwell, it was a uh, commencement speech she gave. She said, uh, there's no getting around the fact that setting words on paper is the tactic of a secret bully. Writing, she suggested, was not merely self-centered but selfish. It was an, in- excuse me, it was an invasion, an imposition of the writer's sensibility on the reader's most private space. And then uh, Garber goes on to say there is something deeply invasive about the simple practice of storytelling when the story one is telling happens not to be one's own. As Didion puts it in her first essay collection, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, writers are always selling somebody out. We're smack dab in the middle of the whole kind of uh, cultural appropriation debate. Um, But she goes on to say that Didion has been famous for being literary, yes, but she has also been literary for being famous. What's new, though, what coincided with the release of Didion's latest books and their attentions, The Year of Magical Thinking, etc., is the Internet, with its lusty appetite for words and its platform's way of both fetishizing authorship and ignoring it. So Didion's quotes dangle disembodied from their original texts on Goodreads and Brainy Quote and in your literary cousin's fanciful email signature. Denizens of 2017, so eager for mentors and meaning, are doing to Didion roughly what she did to Orwell in 1975, and for roughly the same reason. They take, and they sell, and they sell out because they love. Identity for purchase. It's a decidedly American idea, and one that Didion, a cultural critic, whether writing essays or novels, was primed to criticize. Yet now, as New York's Molly Fisher noted, after the big Celine ad came out in early 2005, it is Didion who has become a signifier of literary chic. Didion who has become the product that is conspicuously consumed. The author at 82 represents a very 2007 resonant fusion of girlish longing and jaded ennui, a sense of the world's promises and also of its great capacity to leave those promises unfulfilled. She also represents a kind of personified version of one of the rallying cries of American feminism in the late 1960s, that the personal is political. Her work is infused with the very subversive idea that words, especially when one chooses them oneself, 
I, 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 can be softly weaponized. If one cares enough to find the right ones, words are capable of at once of taking the measure of things and of cutting them down to size. South and West, the notebook, arrives on the scene during a moment of deep anxiety in American culture about stories, and with it about the very things Didion has so effectively dissected with her perfectly chosen words, power, privilege, the way those things have of shaping and shading the world. Story itself has become self-consciously political, and not just in a the personal is political way, but in a more interrogative way, one. Who has the power to tell our stories? Who should have it? When telling the story of another, where is the line between appreciation and appropriation? Where does my story end and yours begin? Uh, I'm almost done. The most common criticism of Didion's writing has been that it is too cold. The second most common has been that it is too self-centered. Here, though, with South and West, those critiques are answered with the warm transparency of an open notebook, with the humble acknowledgement that even someone of Didion's caliber is so deeply capable of failure. How fitting that her latest book be a non-story that dares us to consider what it means to be a story in the first place. How fitting, too, that the writer who once called writing an aggressive, even hostile act has given the world a work that acknowledges an even more basic truth, that not all stories are hers to tell. Mm. There's a lot there. Um, One of my favorite throwaway lines in here, Didion's so fascinating. She's talks about before marrying her husband that she eulogizes in the year of magical thinking uh did he dated a man she refers to as n we lived together for some years she remarked and i think we most fully understood each other when i tried to kill him with a kitchen knife <laughs> that'll do it <laughs> by the way if, if anyone any listeners don't know the definition of ennui it's a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. Now, she uses the word jaded ennui. What ennui yeah, is that exactly. jaded? Like, uh, <laughs> how many people are like, oh, I'm feeling a sense of ennui, but it's not jaded. It's a childlike it's an, it's, kind of ennui. Exactly. It's a, it's a hopeful, uh, childlike, yes, an innocent ennui. It's, it's, it's so it's interesting. Funny. I looked it up. I didn't know what it meant. I looked it up. Back to the the storytelling and identity, yes. I think um, this is something that really is we talk a lot about on Mockingbird and on the Mockingcast, and I think it's it's very interesting in terms of understanding other people. And and two things stuck out in my mind this past week. First was a quote from the psychologist Adam Phillips, who really has uh, been incredible influence. He says symptoms are a form of self knowledge. When you think, I'm agoraphobic, I'm a shy person, whatever it may be, these are forms of self-knowledge. What psychoanalysis at its best does is cure you of your self-knowledge and of your wish to know yourself in that coherent narrative way. So we're getting very tied up in narratives and who's who is the privileged power and everything like that but george saunders who's the really darling of the moment right now because of lincoln and the bardo and if people haven't read ethan and cj's article they really need to run and not walk um when he was talking to the av club this week he was talking about the, the only way to cure our or at least to heal our national our divisions uh, which we've just talked about in the previous piece is uh to regain some sort of novelistic imagination um, to stop talking about broad conceptions of people, I want to talk about quote Naomi. I want to reimagine those people that I've that I've projected about as a three dimensional human being. The ability to sympathetically imagine someone who offends you is an incredible gift, and it does not involve enabling them. But losing the ability to imaginatively create the world beyond our experience that is led to uh, our Im- impoverished um, communities. I think I think he's on to something. How do you and how do you balance these two things? Because you know, I have the right to tell my story. You don't have the right to tell my story. I always think of that Seinfeld where someone buys all of Kramer's stories and he no longer <laughs> has access to them. And uh, you know, mm. he's like, I don't like this at all because these stories make me who I am. And yet they don't. But there's also something proprietary. Um, and yet the ability to try to tell another person's story. Is, is an act of mm-hmm. empathy and an act of sympathy and maybe n- not necessarily an act of allegiance, but it can be an act of um, certainly uh, grace. For me, it has something to do with this place in which we find ourselves where, you know, the first article is almost responding to that kind of modern approach. And this is going to be super generalizing of modernity and postmodernity, but the modern approach of like, there is one narrative and I have it and you will agree with it. Um, and so we're saying now we need to be telling one another's stories and listening to one another to be expanding our sense of what the narrative is. And then to go to the postmodern thing, which is so overwhelmed with our own subjectivity that who am I to have anything to add? And, um, 
and there must be some some place where we can bring these together to say there is this big story that we're all a part of and each one of our stories is a piece of that greater story and we have a responsibility to share our piece not because it is the whole but because we can't see the whole story we can't see all of reality just through our own eyes and to bring in all of the stories and uh and hear them all and also have the courage to share our piece is is for us to then be able to have this bigger image of what this reality is that we're all a part of um, but I think we we usually just go from one to the other of I know everything and everybody should see it as I see it or who am I? You know, I think the Didion piece was very much about that self-awareness of who am I to speak at all or to say what somebody else thinks. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and our guest this week, Emily Smith, in her book, The Power of Meaning, she says that there are four building blocks researchers for a meaningful life and their belonging, um, purpose, transcendence and storytelling. She thinks one of the things that, and and by that she means an ability to make sense of your experiences. Now, I think there's a certain kind of storytelling where you're being yourself and a certain kind where you're seeing yourself, like Thomas Merton says. And when he says, you know, you're seeing yourself, it's the shadow self. It's the imposter. It's I'm trying to project a narrative uh, for you to kind of, you know, so that you will have an impression that I want you to have of me. That There's also this um, book by Harry Frankfurt, which... Uh, he wrote a book called On Bullshit, and then the follow-up book was called On <laughs> Truth. And he says, in any event, caring about truth plays a considerably different role in our lives and in our culture than does caring about the accumulation of individual truths. It has a deeper and a more general significance. It provides a ground and a motivation for our curiosity about the facts and for our commitment to the importance of inquiry. And then he says, we learn that we are separate. When we learn, we learn that we are separate beings in the world, distinct from what is other than ourselves by coming up against obstacles to the fulfillment of our intentions. That is by running into opposition of the implementation of our will. When certain aspects of our experience fail to submit to our wishes, when they are on the contrary, unyielding and even hostile to our interests, it then becomes clear to us that they are not parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We recognize that they are not under our direct immediate control. Instead, it becomes apparent that they are independent of us. That is the origin of our concept of reality, which is essentially a concept of what limits mm. us, of what we cannot alter or control by the mere movement of our will. And he just talks about the importance of truth in the sense of learning where you end and the world begins. And so I think that on that level, that's where the storytelling on the shadow side is when, when, when we're trying to actually like annex the world by telling mm. our story mm-hmm. versus, versus, you know, when it becomes not just a form of description, but prescription and control mm-hmm. probably yeah the thing that has helped me wrestle with this the most is the story of jeremiah and um, i think he gives us permission to have those who am i kinds of moments which we read about with didion um, and at the very beginning of the story god says you know i i'm calling you my prophet and jonas uh, not jonah um jeremiah says who am i i'm just a child and we might expect God to say, oh, no, here's who you are. Look at all these gifts I've given you. Look at all these wonderful qualities you have, all these strengths and abilities and experience. But um, I love it because, you know, Jeremiah begins with the who am I, and God takes that I word. Actually, that's interesting because Didion has a lot of that I as well. And um, <clears throat> God takes that same I word and turns it around. You might expect him to say you back to Jeremiah, but instead he says, let me say I a few times here. I have called you. I have made you. I am equipping you. I am sending you. And um, I think that it is important for us to have those who are my moments because I think I'm actually really nervous when when folks don't have that kind of sense of like self-awareness or or a sense of the... Uh, responsibility in their hands or the reverence for this huge task of speaking. Um, and, and oftentimes when people actually have that moment of who am I, I often recognize that as a, a ministry call, you know, because it is, it is humbling to be called into this. But at the same time, if we stay there, we never really step into what God is calling Jeremiah into, which is getting our eyes off of ourselves mm. and stepping into something bigger than ourselves and looking looking beyond just our own limitation and trusting there is there is a, a force which wants to speak through us and that we are submitted to um that we can't really control and yet at the same time we have some small part in speaking from so it's it's incredibly humbling and i think the best writing and speaking comes from that 
kind of humility, but stepping forward from it, not just being crippled by it or overwhelmed mm. by it. Yeah, it's, it's sort of somewhere between like the sin of pride and the sin of hiding. Mm. That being said, let's move on to failure. Uh, this past week, I was um, I got to be a part of this event here in Charlottesville called the Art of Failure, and I got to be a presenter with um, uh, with Lulu Miller, who's the host of Invisibilia, one of our favorite favorite uh, podcasts, and also musician Devin Sproul, who was unbelievable. It was a really fun evening, and uh, I, the response was so encouraging that I decided to write it up, write up the transcript. And so, um, yeah, uh, it's this whole talk about failure, and I talk about creativity, and what, 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 what is failure? What, what purpose does it serve? Does it serve a purpose? Does it have to serve a purpose? And what has failure taught me personally? And um, I... There's a, I mean, it, it's a little awkward to read your own stuff like this, but um, <laughs> I, I do talk in there a little bit about the history of Mockingbird and at what point we, we there was because there was a very clear time where it felt like it was a, it was completely failed and failing, and I we all wanted out. Um, but I would say here here's the things that the the three lessons because failure is not a strategy. We've talked about that. It can't be turned into a law uh, because no one sets out to fail, even if, if failure on the way to success is not actually failure. But in terms of my own life, three lessons that I've been taught by failures that the, our our conception of what constitutes failure or success is is narrow by definition. It's arbitrary a lot of times, and it's often totally self-defeating. There's as many uh, kinds of success and failure as there are people, and yet it's a very, very uh, help. I mean, a lot of life boils down to this, like it or not. Um, Secondly, failure, I think, teaches us the connection comes at the place of weakness, not strength. Uh, Perfectionism is the friend of paralysis, the enemy of creativity. The mistakes in a work of art are not uh, not flaws always so much as footholds for identification and sympathy. I, I quote a, that great poem by Allen Ginsberg um, a, called Ode to Failure. But finally, the one that's closest to my heart is that failure is what about the only thing, um, and I think this is how God uses failure, to force distance between a person and their project. And uh, for those of us who've grown up in a culture and species that makes very little distinction between individual and output, between identity and uh, works, worthiness and resume, um, we attach ourselves to our creation with such toxic ferocity that when something we do fails, we fail or we become failures. Mm. Um, And yet when you experience failure, when you fall on your face, you realize it's not the be-all, end-all. A personal referendum that you thought it would be life goes on, love persists, and often comes alive in such moments. Um, so I talked about this and, and how like the 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 only way I've been able to found a short circuit investing too much identity into uh, my creative work is by basically doing a ton of things and spreading it very thin, which is a little um, mm-hmm. neurotic. Uh, but it's the way that. It, it sort of works in my life. And one of the reasons I think, I looked back in, in prepping for this, I, I realized one of the reasons that I was able to become a writer, at least pursue it in any kind of fruitful way, was that when I was in high school, uh, we were divided into regular English and honors English. And I had, a, um, I was placed in regular English and my roommate um, was in honors English. And I remember going to my teacher at the end of my sophomore year and saying, you know, I really think I could, I could swing it in honors English. Would you please consider putting me up there? And she said, no, um, you're, you're right where you should be. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't the world didn't end. It was fine. Um, cause she was a great teacher and I knew she cared about me, but, um, it did mean that I'd never invested that much identity in it, at least not for a long time. I thought writing wasn't going to be my thing. I was going to be good at something else. It was just something I did for fun. And then slowly but surely, I realized one day, I was like, oh my Lord, what am I spending most of my day doing? It, it, writing. So I guess I'm, uh, I've become a writer. So, But at the point that it becomes an identity is the point that you need to fail uh, to realize that you are more than your output. Anyway, that's a lot to say. I hope people read it. I really am I'm proud of it. 
Yes, you should read it. You should be proud of it too. It was interesting to think about this, um, your identity as a writer kind of stuff because I've, I'm around a lot of people who are professional artists and sometimes I'm really thankful that I'm not a professional artist, although that's one thing I considered going into because now my art is just for fun and it's actually, I never have to worry about if it's good or not. And my writing, although I get paid for pieces that I write, is, um, is also something that flows when I want it to. It's not my job that someone's asking me every day to come up with something. On the other hand, my preaching I now do <laughs> as my job, and I'm currently this morning preparing a sermon that is really beyond me. And so it was a good reminder to bring, to try to figure out a way to bring that playfulness that I can enjoy with writing and with um, art into the thing that now has become my profession. Um, and it reminded me of the first sermon I ever preached, which I only found out about at 10 p.m. the night before because the the lead pastor at the time was stuck in an airport and I was the associate pastor and I just got this phone call saying, can you preach in the morning? And it was the, <laughs> it was the most horrible way to have your first sermon, but also the most freeing because I could say I didn't have any time to prepare for this, you know. And the funny thing was my, um, the sermon passage was um, the story of the the feeding, you know, the boy with the loaves and the fish. And so I remember my first sermon literally saying like, I have, I have nothing in my hands, just like this boy. I cannot actually do what I'm doing right now, but here I am, you know? And, um, so it was both really terrifying and freeing at the same time because nobody really expected much from me. And, um, yet at the same time now, I, I, it is on my, you know, I was on staff at the church, but it wasn't in my job description to preach at that time. And now it is in my job description to preach. And so I want to, to rediscover that in some way. But, um, I, I think that the best way that I, I know to do this, but I forget it is, um, to look up from, you know, I use the metaphor of having crumbs in our hands, like the boy had very little, you know, and that God still calls us to bring the crumbs and to offer them up as small and measly as they feel. And I can over-focus on the crumbs in my hands, but if you look instead to a hungry crowd, it just changes the way that you respond. Mm. And so when I preach, I try instead of, I try not to preach for my sermon. I mean, I try not to pray for my sermon or myself, even though that's what I feel like doing when I'm anxious. Um, I try to look up to the hungry crowd, so to speak, you know, instead of focusing on the crumbs in my hands. And it always changes my heart towards um, towards what I'm doing and towards them and to think about what small thing do I have to offer to them instead of just here's the small thing that I have. That's beautiful. I think, um, you know, Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great, I think, I think he was in there he's somewhere he references this study that they did at Harvard Business School and CEOs and he found that the worst CEOs talked mostly about their successes. In, in, in interviews and stuff, the, the, the average level sort of median CEOs talked about the same about their successes and failures. And the best CEOs talked mostly about their failures. <laughs> and, hmm. you know, wow. there's, some, there's something about that. You know, Bart says that the only sin you should preach about is forgiven sin. And so hmm. there's a sense in which, like, the reality of grace, I think, is what makes failure something that is – an integratable experience. Yeah. But the, the other thing I think is that the way we conceive of fallenness, sometimes we equate it with finitude, which is just so wrong theologically. I mean, before the fall, our spiritual foreparents were finite. They would have, they were, they were fragile. They were mortal. They would, they would have made mistakes, lots of them. And so, and that's part of the, our failure is built into the divine design. I think now, our fallenness makes failure a different reality because mm. it because it makes failures uh, in, in our own sin and brokenness and the and the the censorious and terrifying voice of the law it, it, it can say to us that your failures mean you are a failure. Mm. Um, but I think in, outside of our fallenness, I think we'd have a different experience. I mean, it's very abstract because we're all fallen. But I mean, I, I think finitude is not mm. fallenness. And in fact, mm-hmm. our finitude is a gift yeah. uh, because without our finitude, we'd never be able to be givers or receivers mm. of love. Mm. I had a similar kind of feeling as I was reading this. Um, and I thought about something in a totally new way as I was reading it, David, um, 
because your idea about the failure being just a strategy that I know like TED Talks, there's plenty of those out there that are about this kind of thing. And and the reason that that kind of failure really isn't helpful is because we're still in control and true failure takes us out beyond our depth and drops us there, you know. And, and I realized for the first time that perhaps that's what the true power of failure does for us that really prepares us for true creativity because both experiences are experiences of being in a place that we aren't in control of. Mm. Um, and if we can learn that from failure, we can learn how to step into the creative process. Um, I think it's, most, it's the most ridiculous and also transcendent moment when a human being says, I don't know what it is yet, but I just know I have to make it. Mm. And it's terrifying. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we all hear and experience this, this moment where like writers say, this character wrote himself, which makes no sense, you know. And when we get wrapped up in that process, there's something beyond us that is at work there. And so most of my art is actually an exploration of like, what is my part and what is something else's part? You know, what what is me just responding to something and what is me actually creating something? Um, which I think is... Um, just really the experiment of life in general, right? Beyond whatever our creative endeavors are, all of life is, you know, what is mine to receive and what is mine to to actually do and give myself. And so I think that also was why I love this piece right at the very end that says, lasting creativity is the fruit of approval. It cannot be the basis for it. And so just this kind of creativity that grows from what we have received instead of just being entirely our own making uh is i think the the most beautiful vision really that was just mm -hmm. what i needed to read this morning so thanks Thank for that Dave. yeah I, yeah and i think like failure like anything is going to be either the raw material for a theology of glory or a theology of the cross and i think what you're saying like the ted talk failure or strategy that's a that's a glory story like a human like but mm. it can also really be the, the the root of a theology of the cross like all mm. so Mm. It, it, things begin and end right with um with the cross and god's gratuitous love for us well thank you my friend thank you guys once again thank you both thank you have a great weekend thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. as always you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website mbird.com if you like what you heard please cruise on over to itunes give us a rating maybe even write a review hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by Dustin Pitts. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs>